one of the people that's really inspired me in this sector and has informed so much of what we do is actually a Ministry of Health person in Tanzania, so Dr. DeFrosa. I started approaching her and saying, hey, this is what we do. These are the challenges that we see in the vaccine cold chain. We know that vaccines have to be kept cold. Proper functioning refrigerators is a core part of that. And so we said, you know, we've done this great work in Mozambique and in Kenya with the ministry. We are strong believers that systems have to be led by the ministry and developed and needed by the ministry from the very beginning. And so, you know, she appreciated our approach and she was like, great, glad you think that way. And by the way, we don't need that right now. That's not where we're at. Hi, everybody. You're listening to Aid Evolved, a podcast about technology, poverty, and health. In this space, we'll be hearing firsthand the stories of people who have dedicated their lives to fighting poverty or improving health care, people who are trying to figure out whether and how technology can help us do this work better. Our goal, as always, is to see what lessons learned we can draw out of their stories to help those of us trying to do the same. I'm Rowena Luke. And today's episode is about Nitya Ramanathan, founder of Nextleaf. And it's the story of how she succeeded in spite of all the people who told her she wasn't smart enough or she wasn't good enough. Nextleaf is a technology nonprofit. Today, its technology protects the vaccine supply for one in 10 children born on Earth. I know that's crazy, right? They're known for their work in low-cost, smart sensor design, data analytics, and data advocacy. But let me give you a real example. Let's say you accidentally left your stove on or you left your freezer open to crack like a friend of mine recently did. They were gone for the weekend and when they came back, they had to eat like 50 pounds of partially thawed meat. Don't ever do this, by the way. Now imagine the stakes are higher. Imagine you're talking about delivering vaccines to all the children in India and for them to work, you need to be sure that they've been kept at the appropriate temperature throughout their storage and transport. Nextleaf makes this easier. Their technology, ColdTrace, is a continuous real-time sensor device that you put inside of a refrigerator so that it lets you know when vaccines get too hot or too cold. And when it does, it sends a real-time alert to health workers who can then respond. They also work on the data, the analysis, the visualization, and all the parts that are needed to translate that information into the effective delivery of vaccines for children. In my conversation with Nitya, we unpack the formative experiences which led Nitya to Nextleaf. All the challenges and the runarounds in high school and college and her work and research before Nextleaf. She shares some of her early mistakes and misadventures with the creation of Nextleaf. And we also, towards the end, talk about some of the trickier issues around the ethics and policy of data ownership or what it means to support government even when that government doesn't support you. But let's get to it. Nitya and I start off by talking about breakfast. The other thing that I learned about Nitya right before this call is that she has watermelon and peanut butter for breakfast. What? Nitya! <laughs> Welcome to the show, Nitya. <laughs> Sorry, I had to out you. I just couldn't. If you, if you guys heard us when we were getting set up, you would have heard just how incredulous I was. It's so great to be here, Rowena. I guess the only thing I'll add is that when I'm not eating watermelon and peanut butter for breakfast, it's dark chocolate and peanut butter for breakfast. So <laughs> I wanted to round out the story. Please, please. That's why you're here. So you can tell the whole, both sides of the equation. Just to get us started, can you tell us a bit about you, your background, you know, maybe something about your family or where you grew up, just so we can sort of 
paint a, a mental picture of who you are? Yeah, absolutely. An incomplete mental picture, I might add. I, I know it's incomplete, <laughs> but just the bits and pieces that we can get on air. <laughs> so I was born in Virginia in the United States a few years after my parents moved here from India. One of the uh, jokes that I like to make actually is that my father started out studying refrigerators as an engineer and evolved to looking at and really discovering many aspects of climate change. And in my career, I got my start actually at NextLeaf looking at climate change and have evolved to better understanding refrigerators and the role of refrigerators in life-saving innovations. Yeah, just a, a little tidbit there. They say we're fated to follow in our parents' footsteps, regardless of whether we want to or not. It sounds like that's <laughs> totally. clearly the case for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it really has been. Yeah, so born in Virginia, and I actually moved around a lot. So I lived in every place for really only a few years. So bounced between Virginia and Colorado a few times, moved to Chicago, um, moved schools there, lived in San Diego for a few years. And then uh, finally, when I started uh, college, moved up to the Bay Area. And so, wow. yeah, it's really informed actually a lot of who I am. I, I really think about it. So thanks for that question. But <laughs> I guess you got used to change with all of that and, you know, respect to your parents coming to this country, having a baby and then getting on the road right away. They must have, they must have had their hands full. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They really did. And there were three of us, by the way. So that's just, what? I imagine. Yeah. Oh, my um, oh man. But yeah. But I, I think it really informed who I am as a builder and a listener and really thinking a lot about adaptability and flexibility and leadership. Are you the eldest, the middle, or the youngest child? I'm the oldest, ah. yes. And I do fit that stereotype. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Hence the leader that you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but so that's that's a little of, of how I got started. And then, of course, Next Leaf is a whole other story of how that started. Yeah, I'm curious to hear how that went. I know from your background, you were in engineering. You spent a bunch of time in the private sector doing some really hard stuff there. And then at some point in your life, you decided, hey, I'm just going to create this new organization building stuff that's never been built before. Can you flesh out my version of the story to be a little bit closer to the truth? Yeah, it actually dates back to high school and a series of accidents. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I loved math. One of the things that I carried with me through all my insecurities and, you know, all the awkwardness of growing up, the child of immigrant parents, you know, a familiar story. I hear you. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, immigrants. We get the job done. We, oh, my God. I was about to make that reference. <laughs> <laughs> Hamilton, Hamilton. Great musical. Everyone should see it. <laughs> Have you seen the video with Riz Ahmed in it? Oh, I love that video. And my, yeah, my, my off-screen boyfriend, Riz Ahmed, is in it. So. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my aunt's great stars. The, uh, you know what I mean by that. I, I'm sure you'll hear that part now. But anyways, so... So you're in high school? Yeah, loved math. Uh, was always, you know, that was like the one thing that I, I knew that I, I could do. But it was interesting back then, which this was quite a while ago now. I think it was like early 1990s, right? So I had a, a counselor. I, I won't out him, though I remember his name, who told me that, you know, math and engineering, that stuff is just too hard for girls. So really like, kind of, you know, pushed me over to stuff that I was terrible at, you know, English and history, things like that, you know. And I, I went to a really good 
cool. So it's, it's really surprising, but you know, it's kind of the times, whatever. You're making my blood boil, Nitya. I just, I just, yeah. oh, I can't, I can't even, sorry, I should let you tell your story, but. No, oh. no, I, I'm sure you feel me. I mean, I'm sure you, you experienced that. That stuff makes me so angry. But, you know, luckily I was both clueless to my surroundings. But so anyways, I just was like, okay, well, I guess I should probably try to find the thing that my counselor says I shouldn't do. And he particularly warned me against electrical engineering. For some reason, he decided that that was like especially what girls should not do. And I actually didn't know a thing about engineering. I didn't know anything about electrical engineering, certainly. I don't know that I would have picked it looking back, honestly. I don't know that it was the best fit. <laughs> but, of course, I was determined. So I applied straight to electrical engineering, of course, for college. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you for not <laughs> listening to that counselor. I hope that counselor has, has since changed his ways. Yeah. But so from there, I, I love building. So that, you know, it, that part of it was a great fit for me. And Nice. All sorts of journeys up and down, didn't excel in all of my classes. I was terrible as a programmer. I will be honest. Software development was not a strength for me. I, really? Yeah, I, That's I got so surprising. Bad <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, eventually I, mean, I, I really found my way in it. But yeah, I got bad grades in college and in soft, my software dev classes. C++ was like crushed me. <laughs> oh no. I'm glad that didn't take the wind out of your sails, as it were. I think a lot of people get discouraged in either high school with counselors like that or in or in university. I'm glad you kept your strength about you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's just to say that, you know, grades are just grades. Like essentially like ends up being my core skill. And the kind of programming they teach you in university is so far from the kind of programming that you do in real life anyways. You know, they don't teach you how to build the right product. They don't teach you how to build products at scale or are robust. I could go on forever, but there's, I've, you know, so many opinions about computer science education and particularly the gender in the computer science education system. But that's a story for another time. But I think it's such an important one, actually. I think we're not talking enough about the education. And, you know, we can even take gender off the table, right? Like the way that we're developing skills. We're not talking enough in engineering about leadership, about product, about all these things that are so you and I know now as part of, you know, enterprises that have scaled, we know how critical those skills are. So Exactly. Anytime that you're building a product, you're, you're going to be doing it as part of a team. And there's this constant trade-off and this constant question of like, not just how do you build the feature, but what feature do you build, which is just as much a part of engineering as the actual building of the thing itself. So I hear you. I think that whole system needs a kick in the pants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as part of the business and as part, it's just all linked. And yeah, and you know, you and I, we're, we're now, we have the benefit of years and we know that we're strong engineers and we know that we're strong builders, but you know, back then, I certainly, I didn't have the benefit of that. So there was a lot of questioning for me. But anyways, I did. I did go on to work in uh, Silicon Valley, you know, at Hewlett Packard, and then Intel. I actually had a really lucky break, even in my interview. I bombed my interview at Hewlett Packard. Oh, no. I uh, worked at Hewlett Packard, worked at Intel. I, I never cared about designing better, faster, cheaper computers. I really just kind of was following one step after another. I did that for four years, ended up thinking, well, at least maybe I should apply to grad school. No real reason why. Went into computer science, uh, applied for a PhD. And from there, I had the incredible good fortune of uh, having a fantastic advisor, uh, Deborah Estrin, just my mentor for life, now a dear friend. But she got me into sensors and distributed sensor networks and building and just hardcore, badass people who build amazing systems. She was a pioneer of the internet and then went on to become a pioneer of distributed sensor systems, which we now know as the Internet of Things. 
What a great role model to have in your life. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. Is it this part of your life where you started to get more involved in not just the academic side of things, but also in, in development work? Yeah. You know, that actually did start right after college. It's part of what drove me to leave uh, Silicon Valley. So alongside building computer hardware at HP and then Intel, I actually was part of uh, forming a social justice organization called ASAPA, which is still around today, which is amazing. Amazing. it was, really? yeah, it was, That's awesome. um, yeah, it's, it's an organization focused on organizing and building social justice and rights for immigrants and immigrant workers and rooted in the South Asian community and rooted in um, kind of all the misunderstandings around the model minority and, you know, all these things that we know about incredible injustices that are perpetuated within the South Asian community by South Asians and regarding South Asians. So was part of that and really found my passion, which was building and justice. So that's really where that came from less around healthcare per se and much more just injustice just i knew was what fighting injustice was like my my driving force so went to grad school my thesis work was actually in bangladesh looking at arsenic poisoning in groundwater and i was building out distributed sensor networks to better understand arsenic poisoning that is naturally occurring uh, happens it's one of the largest environmental poisonings that happens Arsenic is naturally occurring in rock and uh, the groundwater systems and is mobilized into the drinking water just through processes like irrigation. So I was there putting sensors in the ground, but in part, I'm sure by virtue of my background, really connected with the community and the villages there that we were working in, in Bangladesh and started to realize how far away my academic work and the research that we were doing was from actually building real systems that were going to solve the problem. And there was... Oh, interesting. That sounds like a real wake-up call for you. It was. Yeah, it really was. Like, that was that was the first part of it. The real wake-up call came when, you know, as a naive grad student, I raised money because really what the village needed was a well. You know, that was finally what they needed, a deeper well that was going to bypass the arsenic. And so, of course, like that... <laughs> do-gooder, right? I was like, oh, I'm going to raise money. We had to raise $5,000. And we did it, you know, in a few days. It was amazing. And then we came in. Yeah, we built the well. And, you know, I think that was like towards the end of my work there. And I left and I remember on the plane just being like, oh my God, what did I just do? Like, what's going to happen when that well breaks? You know, who are they going to call? Like, I I didn't think about that and all the fanfare and the celebration and you know, the garlands and, you know, I felt so good about myself and the whole savior thing. And I was really, really crushed by literally what I had perpetuated. And I was ashamed, I, you know, like that. And shame is debilitating, but really powerful, you know, and I, I carry that to this day, honestly. So, but did, like, do you, did you know that that village, cause there, there's something to say for that in that initial setup cause, you know, like there's like the initial investment of, of digging the well, the village just didn't have the capacity, didn't itself have the capacity to maintain the well, you know, a well strikes me as like a very basic piece of infrastructure and that it should be, that should be easier to maintain than various other things that you, you could have built, you know, if you built a school, then you need teachers. <laughs> but I, I get like, I, I think I'm, I'm probably missing something about this being a big failure. Like, it, like when I hear that story, it sounds like, oh, like you were invested, like you raised $5,000 in a couple of days. Like that sounds like, like a lot of grad students don't do that much. No, I, I appreciate that. I think the shame for me was as a former reformed academic, I think the shame for me was not even asking the question. 
right? Like I didn't even stop to ask who's going to fix this well. How is it going to work? Who's going to pay for the spare parts? The fact that I didn't even think to ask that to me was such a form of hubris in that moment and like short-term thinking. And because I am somebody who always thinks about the system, I think about the big picture. It's like how I'm wired. I think that's where the shame mm. came from. Oh man, Nitya, this, I, I, I hear what you're saying and well, we're just scratching the surface of, of that kind of, of hubris that you're talking about. Again, I, I want to say like, Nitya, don't be so hard on yourself. Like it was, it was you know, you could have done worse. Could've done, could've done worse. I'm, I'm not a well expert. Don't get me wrong, but like <laughs> I've definitely heard yeah. of more ridiculous stories. <laughs> so don't beat yourself up. No, it's, you know, I hear you. And still, for me, that's actually such an important driving force. I use that and I take that with me every day, honestly. I don't, it hasn't stopped me. It hasn't limited me. It's actually just been such a source of inspiration. It's like, it's like what we do now. It's like our raison d'etre, you know, it's like literally drives us. But I will say, you know, now, unfortunately, the data backs up the fact that I was hard on myself, that like we know now that one in three wells that are built mostly in these like sort of quote charitable forms, they don't work. And it's because they break soon after. And this is not to say that we shouldn't be investing in wells. We absolutely should be investing in infrastructure. In fact, I personally think we don't invest enough in building infrastructure, but we have to be investing in those ecosystems and systems around that infrastructure. We can't just be even a well, something as simple as a well, which was locally built, right? Local PVC, local mechanisms. There's probably nothing. That's fascinating. I'm learning something even in this, as you mentioned, like, I I guess I I would have expected a well to have, you know, like, I don't know, several good years in it before the repair and maintenance issues come in. But I guess what you're saying is that now now you're seeing with the data that you're collecting that they do degrade quite quickly and it's it's irresponsible to build them without having any thought or plan for their maintenance. Yes, that is exactly it. And I should say, this is the global we. Like, we don't work in wells and water, but the global we, the data that's been collected across the sector, we know that. But yes, exactly. I think it's irresponsible. I love what you said. The other thing that you mentioned as you were talking about that community that you're working with in Bangladesh is that you're able to make more of a of a connection with them because of your background. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Like, what was it? What was it about you and about them that you think really, really caused that connection? I'm glad you called that out because that was a bit of a loaded statement to some extent. What I was thinking about is that as a graduate student, I hadn't yet started thinking deeply about what it means for solutions to be community-driven, community-owned. I didn't have that part of, you know, what is now so important to me. I wasn't necessarily thinking about users. I wasn't thinking about products. I wasn't thinking about any of this stuff. I was literally a grad student who was, like, trying to build sensors. I was building time synchronization algorithms. You know what I mean? Like, I was, like, yeah, so far. I do know what like, you mean. <laughs> 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 and so when I said that, I meant more that I wasn't there like thinking about the communities. I really wasn't, if I'm totally truthful with you. You know, I was there trying to get sensors to work. I've definitely been there. I guess one question I have is, do you, as a, as you say, recovering researcher, academic yourself, <laughs> do, you, do you think the, <laughs> do you think the, the onus is on the researcher to solve the whole problem? That is a great whole other big question. On the one hand, I have a lot of empathy. I think researchers, the power of research is being really focused and going really deep into a problem to uncover. At the same time, I think where we are in this day and age and the way that solutions are being built, I don't think researchers have the luxury of, I don't think any of us have the luxury to sit back 
and say, we're going to solve this one problem. And at the same time, I also don't think we should be perpetuating the sector of like large, uh, the practice of large NGOs where, you know, one organization tries to take all of it on and solve it for job security. You know, so I don't think we should be doing that either. I think there's this really important thing that you're asking that I think we all have the responsibility to be looking at the big picture, the entire system, figuring out how what we're going to do is going to fit into that. But I think where we need to be doing more and doing better is also partnering effectively, not the bogus fake partnering, but like real partnerships where we are then saying, okay, here's what I'm good at. Here's what I can do. But I see the big system. I see the big problem. So let me go out and find the like XYZ partner, the local partner, the ministry, whoever that is to really build out a holistic picture. None of us can just sit back and say, we're going to solve this one problem anymore. Yeah, I think that's a great, a great perspective. I think you've articulated it very compellingly. You know, everyone, everyone has their own particular expertise or passion or skill sets. Um, at the end of the day, not one person is going to have, you know, all the different skills and resources, et cetera, that you need for these interventions. But at minimum, we all owe it to the people that we serve to know that we are one part of the puzzle. We are one part of a much greater puzzle and to not absolve ourselves of the responsibility and making sure that that part is being addressed, even if it's not by us, it could be by somebody else, but at least somebody is is investing in that. So very, very well put, Nitya. That is exactly right. It sounds like this experience that you had um, in Bangladesh was a key moment for you and your self-awareness and the evolution of your approach to development and to technology. How did that change affect what you did next? Yeah, that experience in Bangladesh really, in some ways, informed for me what I really vowed to myself I would never do again. I never wanted to make that mistake again. And it's interesting because often in building an organization, we have a North Star, a guiding light. But quite frankly, for me, it was really sort of like, I don't know yet what that North Star is when when Martin and I started NextLife. But I was really clear in the ways that I would not show up and not act in the ways that I would not be part of solutions. Nitya, what was that founding story for you? Like, What was the moment where you and Martin sat down and said, hey, we're going to do this? I think it was pretty, in some ways, very prototypical for builders. And because we were such builders, like we, we never thought about the business of it for better and worse right? Like (laughs) we just talked about like what we were going to build and the next thing we were going to build. And it was just always about the building, which I think was, yeah, it was just really formative. You know, quick uh, founding story. We, our name, we were, Martin and I are terrible at naming things. I'm just going to out him. (laughs) He he may disagree with this, but I I will speak to both of them. We are terrible at naming things. And, um, when we uh, first started. So, you know, early conversations, right? Like, well, okay, what am I going to do today versus tomorrow? And, you know, all of that. But we were both like at the time writing code, we were both building and doing stuff and, you know, all of those things. But we, we named fun. the organization. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Right. The, the fun part. <laughs> um, we named the organization Lorax. So we were actually Lorax Analytics. Oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> like the Dr. Seuss book, right? We just bought that. Yes. That's exactly uh, right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. It's a great book. It's a bit, it's a bit dark. You know, it's a bit as a children's book. You expect, you expect it to be bright and sunny at the end, but it's really not. It's kind of, you know, excuse my language, but it's kind of like we're fucked unless you do something. 
Don't, not to spoil the book for all the listeners out there, but that is actually how the book goes. <laughs> and then you started Lorax, Lorax Incorporated? Or, yeah, Lorax, Lorax Analytics. Or... Yeah, we started Lorax <laughs> Analytics, and it was it was a for-profit, actually, when we first started. Really? And again, I, I didn't yeah, we didn't, yeah, we didn't know anything about the business, and we just were like, well, this is the fastest way to incorporate, so let's do this, but... We really saw ourselves as building sensors that would speak for the trees. Like that was that spoke to That's us. That's awesome. That's a great name. You should have kept it. I mean, you would have been sued by the Dr. Seuss, you know, publishers and such, but it would have been worth it. It's a great well, name. What are you talking we about? We were. We were. We got a cease and desist from Dr. Seuss. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding. No, I'm not. That's a whole separate story. <laughs> Oh, I guess I could have seen that coming. Apparently you did. I should have consulted you, Marina, before we came up with the name. I still like the name. I stand by it. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm sorry. That sounds like a headache. (laughs) That must have been a a bit of a scrabble for you to reprint all the business cards and everything. (laughs) Nitya, we're running a little bit low on time. I'd love to hear if you have any any stories that you want to tell about your work with Nextleaf or your work with Coltrace, just about some of the, you know, like when you start a company or an organization, you know, many times you, you stop <laughs> a year or two into it. You've been with Nextleaf for, for many years now, and clearly something's, something's happened at the very beginning that made you realize that this was a good idea and that you should keep on with it. Is there any, any stories you want to tell from those early years that are either fun or interesting or, or, or things that you carry with you as you continue to work and grow the work of Nextleaf? For me, it is stories about the users of our technology that keeps me going. One of the people that's really inspired me in this sector and has informed so much of what we do is actually a Ministry of Health person in Tanzania. So Dr. DeFrosa, she's just this power of strength. Everything about her just exudes, yeah, just exudes power. I need to meet her. (laughs) I'm going to Tanzania the moment I can fly. She's fantastic. And, you know, whatever space she's in, you know, you could be having tea with her. You could be in a space with her in a, where she's, uh, you know, in a, a space of global players, power players. She could be running a team meeting. Um, you know, I've seen her do all of it and just witness the sheer power that she brings to her decision making. Yeah, I've, I have, I've learned so much. One of the things that I read, oh, I don't remember who said this, but essentially, if we're not stunned by the sheer stupidity of our thinking even a year ago, then we're not learning enough. And I, oh, man, I, I love that. I need to, I need to start being a little bit more stupid. <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I'm like really badly phrasing what somebody else has said and far more uh, elegantly, I'm sure. But you know, no, that, I love it. I'm going to write that on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that I, I do keep with me because we are learning so much on this journey. And when I say we, I do mean, you know, me, myself, us as leaders, uh, us at NextLeaf, our team members, but also in the sector. And I, I think about Dr. DeFrosa. She thinks about the system while she's making even the most detailed decisions. She knows what she wants and she goes for it. And so the story with Dr. DeFrosa is that I was so inspired by her years before we got to start working with her. And I started approaching her and saying, hey, this is what we do. These are the challenges that we've seen in the vaccine cold chain. We know that vaccines have to be kept cold. 
proper functioning refrigerators is a core part of that. Oh, and by the way, we know that, you know, the maintenance of those refrigerators is critical. The financing of those refrigerators is critical. Everything that I learned in Bangladesh, we saw play out over the years in terms of helping countries build out strong systems and the data that we had in putting sensors in refrigerators. And so we said, you know, we've done this great work in Mozambique and in Kenya with the ministry. We are strong believers that systems have to be led by the ministry and developed and needed by the ministry from the very beginning. And so, you know, she appreciated our approach and she was like, great, glad you think that way. And by the way, we don't need that right now. That's not where we're at. Oh, burn. Yeah. Oh man, you must have been crushed. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I was just like, you are such a fascinating leader and so inspiring. I'm going to follow you wherever. And so I just kept the conversation wow. going with her, kept learning from her and just, because I just, she was just this incredible person. And now, yeah, you know, and kudos to you for stepping outside of yourself. You know, I think what a lot of people when they're told we don't need the solution that you're bringing, particularly after they invest their time and energy and they showed up and they did all this work, they you know, like, are you sure? You, you know, really somewhere, someone, someone could use this maybe over here, over there. It sounds like you listened to what she had to say when she said, we don't need the thing that you have right now. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, wow, well, well done, Nitya. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most important things that we've brought that I am proud that I think we've um, started to see more of in this sector Um, and, you know, probably came from watching you, Rowena, but, you know, it's like (laughs) really listening, really like focusing on like, finally, yes, we're building, yes, we're doing all this stuff. Yes, we think it's important, but like really like what does the user need? What do the countries need? That is perhaps my most important North Star that I've built over the years. And yeah, absolutely. It was just about like really understanding what does Dr. DeFrosa need and, and never trying to come to her and like convince her, but like learning so much from her. And over the years, like it was like really four or five years later that we actually, she really came to us at that point. It was like, okay, actually we're at the point where the country is ready. The country needs this. Um, tell me more about what it is that you oh, guys wow. do again. <laughs> so, um, she's built an incredible team. Balula, who's now, you know, stepping in as, as a leader um, for Dr. DeFosa. It's just, it's really inspiring and exciting to really follow and get to learn from countries what they need and, and what they're building. Because ultimately, you know, what we're doing is a very small part in a much larger system that countries are building. And the only way that our work is going to scale, I personally believe, is um, with government. As much as we all like to criticize and try to sidestep government. You know, I see that so much in the flows of money and how the sector works and decision-making. Finally, at the end of the day, it is their country and that government that has to scale it. And so we are very big believers in um, following the government. And I, I learned a lot of that in part through uh, Dr. DeFosa. Awesome. Wow. What a great story, Nitya. And the other thing that I find neat about what happened in that interaction is, is that there's something about your work and your persistence, the fact that you had this intervention or you had you had this piece that you're working on and it wasn't right for Tanzania in one year. So you went somewhere else, you did something else, you know, but, but you continued in this sector, you know, Nextleaf continued doing this kind of work until five years later when Tanzania was ready. You know, like there's something about about solutions living on through through organizations and through people so they can be picked up and applied when they're needed, but also that when they're not, they're not needed, they can still continue, you know, somewhere else in the world, you know, doing something else. And I think that speaks to the importance of living organizations, living products, living products, living solutions that can adapt to a variety of use cases. So, wow. I love that your story is about her saying no to you and then coming back (laughs) five years later and saying yes. (laughs) I love your point though. That's, that's exactly right. And I mean, the short thing that I'll say now is like, 
it's been so crazy. And now getting to read about the work that we've been doing on the front page of the New York Times, and not our work, but I mean, like, a year ago, when people would ask me about what I do, and I'd say, oh, we build strong vaccine supply chains, because vaccine supply chains are so important. Vaccines are one of the most, you know, cost-effective, life-saving interventions out there. And now, of course, we're reading about vaccine supply chains on a daily basis. Yeah, everybody, (laughs) glued to the television. (laughs) Yeah, so we all now know, So, you know, speaking of, like, just kind of continuing this work, because we know it's important, and now, you know, it's, it's just exploded into the public space, just vaccine supply chain. For sure. Nitya, I can tell from the conversation that we've had so far that you're a bit of a humble person. You don't really like to brag about yourself, but because we have a podcast, I'm just going to encourage you. Like, Nitya, can you talk about something from those first couple of years, some achievement that you made that you're particularly proud of or something that NextLeaf did that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, I'll give you two examples. One is from the early years. So in the early years, uh, when we first got started, we were collaborating with Medic Mobile, actually, and Josh. And I was talking with him at a conference. And I said, you know, Josh, we, we can build a really low-cost temperature sensor. And we've been working in clean cooking, but I have a feeling there's more that we could do with this. And he said, have you heard of the vaccine supply chain? <laughs> like early on, you know, 2012 or 2011. And just for the for the benefit of our audience, Josh is the is the CEO of Medic, um, which is another great social enterprise out there doing mobile data collection and, and a bunch of other stuff, but, but like applications on mobile phones for health workers. Yeah, thank you for that. So we started from there and he said, you know what I'd love to do is work with you guys in Kenya. So We had this crazy idea where everybody was focusing on the vaccine storage in the capital. So everybody, including the Gates Foundation um, and other major players, were focusing on the major warehouses that were stored, that were storing um, all of the vaccine supply, because that's where most of the value of the vaccines were stored. But Josh and I started wondering, like, what would happen if we went to the last mile clinic and put a sensor there? Because that's where the infrastructure is the weakest. And everybody told us we were crazy, that you can't put a sensor in a clinic. That doesn't make sense. The resource allocation won't work. Nurses will you know, feel like they're being monitored. They'll hate it. We heard all sorts of things, but we pushed on. And one of the things that we found really early on was how grateful nurses were and healthcare workers at the facility. Because for the first time, the alarms that they had been raising verbally were actually raised by this device. And so you had this mostly objective sensor device that would send out an alert when the fridge was not working. And a healthcare worker could use that to either respond or to actually take that to their supervisor and say, hey, I really need the technician. I really need the you know fridge replacement. I really need all these things to keep vaccines safe. Essentially, what we learned is that when a fridge calls for help, healthcare workers will respond. And there are mostly really motivated, really focused really caring healthcare workers who really want to ensure that the vaccines stay safe. And because the vaccines are government-sponsored, they're part of centralized government programs, the messaging is drilled in from the very beginning. These vaccines are very valuable. You are getting something very valuable in your care. You have to do everything you can to care for them. And we have stories of, of healthcare workers coming in throughout the weekend because they were worried about a fridge failing again and didn't want the vaccines to go bad. And we essentially just tapped into that already intrinsic motivation that existed for healthcare workers and just gave healthcare workers the data that they needed to actually make the case. That's awesome. Two things I find incredible about that story. One is that 
today. Some of the work that you're most known for is the vaccine supply chain work. And so it's really funny to hear about you talking to Josh and how Josh introduced that idea to you. Uh, sounds like that was a very fruitful collaboration. So um, <laughs> that's awesome. And the other thing, Nitya, that you're pointing out there uh, has to do with you know the nature of push and pull notifications that go to these health workers. I think a lot of health workers know, like, you know, keep the fridge cold. But in practice, it's hard to actively manage such a passive thing. Like if you don't know when it's warming up, you know, today's a hot day, but yesterday was also a hot day. You know, what does what does a health worker do in that situation? I'm I'm sure there's there's parallels in in everyone's lives that are are like this, but where the passive monitoring is hard, but the active response to a push notification that you get from a phone actually makes staying on top of your responsibilities a lot easier. Um, so it makes a lot of sense, Nitya, what you're saying, that having this kind of sensor in place would actually allow health workers to act um, and to, you know, to take action in order to ensure their responsibilities are fulfilled and that the vaccines are working effectively. And also it gives them a little bit of credibility, you know, like this is a there's this is a program, this is a notification that came from the sensor. We need to act on the basis of this. It's not it's not just some well-meaning nurse worrying and checking and checking and checking. Um, this is the technology has given them a trigger for change. So I really like that story. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I think you nailed it. it gives the healthcare workers the credibility. That's exactly what we've seen. I was going to share actually one other story of something that I'm really proud of. Go for it. One of the other things that we saw through our work, working with sensors, working with analytics, working with governments, is how often data was extracted from countries without country permission and was used in exchange for value. So in some instances, companies have been trying to sell the data. In some instances, it's still well-meaning researchers, but who are holding what on to data. What kind of data are you talking about? It can be all sorts of data. It could be data from a fridge. It could be data about a vaccine supply. It could be patient data, but it doesn't have to be. It could be interview data. The point is, all of this is data. A lot of it is valuable. And really, it should be owned by the country. And so one of the things that I've been talking about a lot more is the data colonialism and the practices that I've been seeing that are really extractive in nature and are really based on this notion of taking power, taking resources out of the country. And so one of the things that I'm really proud of and really excited about is we work really closely with Gavi and uh, recently the CEO of Gavi. Just a quick interjection here for the benefit of our audience. Gavi being the Vaccine Alliance, a public-private global health partnerships, which is the largest funder of vaccines for poor countries in the world. That's right. So central in the COVAX effort now, along with WHO and others. And Gabby put out one of the first statements that I've ever seen from a large multilateral or a large organization like that saying that countries own their data and that that meant that they actually, you know, had a say and determined where that data went, how it was used and yeah, owned the data. This was really the first time and the first statement that I had seen speaking to that. And that was a lot of our work. So a lot of our advocacy and support and insights based on what we had been learning, what we had been seeing, and, and this work around decolonizing data oh, fascinating. directly into that. Yeah, I didn't, so I didn't realize I'm, that I'm, um, that Nextleaf was an advocacy organization, and this this sounds like a like a major political shift um, in the way that people are thinking about ownership of of that data, particularly the vaccine supply chain data. That's wild. Yeah. Could you share the, an example of the need for this kind of data protection that you're talking about? Like what happens when a country's vaccine supply data 
is compromised or is, is taken without the consent of that country? For example, in Kenya. So in the Kenya Ministry of Health, um, they've talked about just the humiliation, but also the disempowerment when they're sitting at a conference and they see data from their country about their country, often collected by their country, presented at a conference and often taken out of context, presented in a way that it's not about making somebody look bad or good. But when we take data out of context, it becomes so easy to distort yeah, that, uh, that's a great example. I can, can I can imagine, you know, if if someone made a chart of like the, you know, how often I'm able to respond to my emails within 24 hours, like it's a great goal. <laughs> I do my best. But then if I went to a conference and I saw that on the big screen, right. Oh, right. I would be so angry, <laughs> even if it's true, yeah, even if it's exactly. my goal, even though I've set that goal, I publicized that goal, but it's it's my goal. It's not somebody else's. So that actually, I think that's a really great example, Nitya. Yeah, that's and I love the the way that you personalized it. That's right because you know sometimes we talk about disempowerment, we talk about these things, and I think they can take on this almost academic or meaningless term. But yeah, it's anger. It's these like very real emotions that should be had. Oh. Yeah, and often the people listening, you know, if it's an academic conference, for example, they might not appreciate all the other things that are going on. You know, maybe the maybe this part of the health supply chain or the health system is suffering, but it's because so much energy is going to another part, and that part is doing really well, and maybe that's where all the mortality is happening. And so it's very easy to critique something as big as a country and a lot harder to to drive positive change. Yeah, love that. The other quick example that really makes me angry is um, companies that are developing business models based on capturing data that, again, is collected in a country often by... Yeah, yeah. I think, I think a lot of people listening to, these, to this podcast who, who use Facebook or use WhatsApp or <laughs> have that kind of thinking at the top of their minds. Yeah, no, and you know, often countries will pay for these services, but then won't get full access to the data. Often the login gets lost and, you know, customer service doesn't respond. There's all sorts of shenanigans that happen. And on top of that, often this data, because it's built on a business model of capturing rather than proliferating, simple things like interoperability, system interoperability doesn't happen. And you get data that's stuck in silos in a way that then the country can't even access, let alone fully take advantage of in order to drive that positive change um, in the country. And then to add insult to injury, countries often get blamed for not using this data, right? So it's just, <laughs> I can only imagine how frustrating it would be not to be able to access your own data in, in a country, and then to see that other organizations have somehow gotten access to that data, you know, like that's, that sounds like an injustice right there. All right, Nitya, let's dive into our rapid fire questions. The first question I have for you, Nitya, is if you have any advice for young professionals who might be listening to this podcast and thinking about going into digital health, any guidance for them in their careers? Two things. One is persist, persist, persist. Oh, I think, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> um, I think it can be so easy, especially as we all talk about and love to talk about the successes and what goes well. And I struggle to talk about the failures. I want to, I want people to really understand the failures, but often it can be just, it's harder to, to describe those, but I want people to know that this work, this stuff is mostly, it's mostly mistakes. It's mostly <laughs> failures. It's mostly a lot of us making things up so as we true. go. 
Yeah. And, and the successes are in part, of course, incredible hard work, incredibly like landing on the right answer, but also luck. And that's why persisting is so important because often when we fail, sure, we need to learn from it. We need to improve. And also sometimes it was bad luck. And on the flip side, when we succeed, sometimes we partially have the right answer and it's been hard work and we've also had good luck. So persisting is, I think, the most important thing. The second is just remembering your personal North Star because there's so many decision points along the way, infinite decision points. And we're not going to get all of those decisions right. We're not always going to do the right thing, but it's been so important for me to know what I'm not going to compromise on. For example, data ownership. That was something that was always really important to me from the beginning. Power distribution, making sure that there's equity in the system. That's a lot of my personal North Star and has really guided my decision making. And so as an organization, should we dedicate resources to fighting for countries to own their data? Absolutely. No questions asked. There's lots of things that I haven't done that I should, but that personal North Star has really kept me focused on what's That's awesome. Great advice, Nitya. The next question I have for you is about technology. If there's someone else's product or tool that um, you might recommend that's been useful to you in your work. So this is a little bit more indirect, but Recidivis. So Recidivis is a data platform. It's around criminal justice reform in the U.S. I uh, have been fortunate. I myself do not have to use this Something you want to share with us, Nitya? I was going to ask. But it's been such an inspiration. And the founders, Andrew and Clementine, are brilliant. And both, you know, just in direct conversation, but also even just in looking at how that product is described, how they've developed their North Star for the product has been a source of inspiration for me. I I think anybody building a product should look at how Recidivis has been designed and how it is articulated because it is very powerful. One of the most powerful product articulations that I've Would you like to offer a a shout out to another mover or shaker in this field? Yeah, Yeshi Milner. She is the founder of Data for Black Lives. She is brilliant, inspiring, and an incredible communicator of why it is so important to diversify the voices in data and the collection of data and the analysis of data and the articulation of data. She is incredibly inspiring. And I encourage you to, I don't think it's out yet, but read her forthcoming book. I listened to a number of her talks. Uh, yeah, she's just awesome. dynamite. That sounds so, so, so topical right now, I think. Nitya, do you have any recommended reading, be it a book, an article, a blog, or a podcast, either related to work or just for fun? I recently read Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World by Anand Gary Deradas, and it just blew my mind. So highly recommend it. Provocative. And, you know, you probably take some, what is the word, a license, creative license. Anyways, he's an incredible writer, but there's a core truth in the book that I think is really important for us to be talking about. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of my my colleagues have talked about that book as well. It basically boils down the kind of Western thinking or private sector corporate consulting approach that has has started to permeate the sector and that you can see, even going back to the topic of like race and culture and, and how those things intersect, like there is something Western about how these kinds of organizations work and approach. And it's interesting when you intersect that with the cultures and the geographies that we're trying to work with. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And 
I would never want anybody to take away that private sector engagement is not the right way forward because I absolutely think it is local private sector, global private sector. We actually, I believe we need private sector engagement in strengthening economies and building solutions that work. It's the way that it happens and all the different types of, of, yeah, companies that get involved and the way that their advice tends to hold sway in a way that, yeah, probably shouldn't. Absolutely. There's lots of different organizations, private and public sector out there with good approaches and bad approaches. Um, and so it's about being thoughtful about all those different things. For the next podcast. <laughs> For sure. Nitya, we didn't even get a chance to talk about how busy you must be right now with the whole world watching the vaccine supply chains play out. We're, we're going to have to do another call or another interview at some point in time just to talk about that. But thank you so much for making the time to speak today. It was it was really wonderful just to hear your, your story and your journey through the sector. It's been a pleasure. I love chatting with you, Irina, as always. To learn more about Nitya's work, you can go to their website at nextleaf.org. That's N-E-X-L-E-A-F dot org. And if you have any comments or suggestions about this episode, don't hesitate to reach out on Twitter at AidEvolved or by email at podcast at AidEvolved.com. We'll see you next time.